Good evening, brothers and sisters. My name is Isaac Adams, and I have the joy of serving here as one of the pastors. Uh, it's good to see you, and if you're watching this on Zoom, it's uh, good to be seen by you. Uh, and it's good to be back up here. Uh, I don't remember the last time I was up here teaching. And fun fact, on March 22nd, 2020, uh, I had planned to give an elder's address about race. Not this talk I'm going to give, but a different one. Uh, but then, 10 days earlier, on March 12th, we suspended services given COVID-19. I had no idea that months later I'd be given this talk, but then again, lots of us haven't had any ideas about anything in 2020, uh, which, to, which is to say 2020 has been a crazy year. And more than that, for not a few of us, it's also been a hard year, hasn't it? That's why we're having these talks. Uh, our church has not been exempt from the difficulty. And yet, beloved, uh, we have sought to love each other through it. And I want to encourage you in that. If you're seeking to love others, if you've been loved by other members, praise God. Uh, we want to keep loving each other through the difficulties, and so we're having this teaching series Bobby got us off to a great start uh, talking about how we can be agents of unity, especially in difficult times. And we're going to try to apply what Bobby said to one topic it's hard to be an agent of unity on. Race. Oh, friends, what can be said about race? much more than our brief time together will allow. Uh, but nonetheless, in a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to think together. So let's pray. Our Father, God, even those two words remind us of our unity. We are different children, but we are all your children. You are our Father. We are one family in Christ. So we sit here not just as friends and acquaintances or even church members, but most fundamentally as your sons and daughters. Help us to remember as much and rest in as much and rejoice in as much as we talk about this difficult matter of race. Father, would you increase our love for you and our neighbor and our brothers and sisters in this time? We ask knowing that nothing is too hard for you. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, beloved, we're going to answer four questions about race this evening. Four questions. And you are going to answer the first one. And here it is. Question number one. What Bible verses do you think apply to issues of race? When it comes to matters of race, racism, ethnicity, that general bucket, what are some verses you think drip into it? So please raise your hand, share your name, and share a book, chapter, and verse 
and briefly how you think it applies to these matters. And can we get mic runners? Thank you, brothers. And raise your hand, and we got Bobby in the back. Uh, Bobby, Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Great. Acts 17, 26. I'll be writing our references up here. Here you have my Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Thank you, Bobby. Yep. Uh, let's go. Allot and then Stephen. Uh, name is Alad Vida, and the verse is uh, Galatians 3:28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Right. And any thoughts on that, Alad? Yeah, I think it's just a, a very sweet and uh, comforting reminder about what ultimately unifies us all despite all of the differences, political, racial, whatever else might be. That's right. And for whatever, however real those differences may or may not be, they don't determine our status within the kingdom. Good. Uh, Stephen, I think, had a stand up. Um, I won't read it because it's a little long, but Ephesians 2, 11 through um, 22, talking about the wall of division being torn down between Jew and Gentile. Yeah, and any thoughts on that, Stephen? Oh, um, so it talks about um, how... Uh, in Christ, we are uh, reconciled, um, that he has accomplished this through his person and work. Amen. So in 2, 1 through 10, glorious gospel truth. We are dead in our trespasses. We are under God's wrath. Christ has came and he saved us. The fruit of that work is reconciling one new man. Good. Mark? 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29. Uh, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Uh, it seems like there's a continual desire in the human heart, fallen human heart, to find things in ourselves to boast in. Uh, I think much of what we read in the history of this conversation will be uh, a race boasting about them as opposed to others. And that's, uh, that's been typical of different races throughout history and different places in the world. And uh, this disallows that as a Christian. Amen. And what was the reference, 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 28, 29. Good. Kristen, yeah. Uh, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that just speaks to God creating the human race, that there's one race. Amen. Amen. Foundational text. Thank you for cracking open the Old Testament for us. Dan? 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 20. I know it's mainly talking about spiritual gifts in this context, but I think it applies to diversity, unity amidst diversity in the church. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it not make it any less a part of the body. Um, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And so it goes on to say, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Good. And that was 12, 14 to 20? 14 to 20. Yep. Great. Thank you, brother. Josh, up top. Serena, yeah. James 2, 1, about showing no partiality. Yeah, and any thoughts on that, Serena? 
I actually can't take credit for it because it's from my friend Sharon who's sitting next to me. But um, basically not showing partiality or preferring a different type of people over another, treating them the same. Amen, amen. And to your friend, I think that is a super important text. It's great to have you here this evening. Joe right here, and let's see, we have Dan down here. And Anna Grace, did you have anything to talk And I was going to say, I meant to say, uh, if someone else says your text, that's totally fine. We are happy to hear the same one twice. So don't feel like, ah, that was mine. Philemon, uh, verses 15 and 16. Um, Paul says to welcome him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Uh, So um, uh, Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave, and Onesimus came to faith. And now he's going back to Philemon, and Paul sends him with this letter and tells Philemon, hey, you should receive your former slave uh, back as a brother in Christ now, no longer as a slave. Amen. And that was 15 and 16? That's right. Great. Philemon, short and as beautiful as it is neglected today. Dan and then Ben Lacey, and then we've got one over here. Uh, Numbers 12, 1. Moses marries a Cushite woman, and it says that Mary and Aaron opposed him because he did that. And then later on in the passage, they're actually judged for it. Yeah, that's right. It's a, the text explicitly says they opposed her because she was that. Um, Acts 6, 1 through 3. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And Casey, how do you see that? Uh, how do you see that applying? It's a great verse. I'm going to cite those verses later, and we got William over here. Um, yeah. It just—it's um, indicative that this is a problem that has been around since the disciples, and at that point in time, they saw it, they addressed it immediately, but it was something that they didn't necessarily address directly. They—this was when we got, you know, deacons to start working on those things, so there was a, a focus on it immediately. But it wasn't necessarily the focus of the 12 apostles. Hmm. Hmm. uh, Let's go William and then Ben. So I'm going to do Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Any application there, brother? Yeah, so, you know, the first part, you know, 1 Corinthians 1 upholds Christ as our unity, and that is where we should have our understanding from, and Paul warns here and, and elsewhere to not be taken captive by, you know, contrary human philosophy or traditions or teachings, and obviously there's a lot of bad teachings out there on a lot of things, and race is not exempt from that. There's some really bad teachings out there on our culture on race. Amen. Ben. Yeah, uh, another Old Testament reference, Isaiah 1. This is God's rebuke of Judah, and he says this, Wash yourselves in Isaiah 1, verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Great, thank you. And did you share just a brief application? Yeah, I just think here, Judah had been um, 
doing the festivals right. They were gathering uh, the right way according to the law, but they were uh, neglecting the weighty matters of justice and oppression and, and doing those things that God had entrusted them to do. Echoes of Matthew 23 there. Josh, did you have one? Oh. Okay, awesome. We'll go right here. Yeah, Titus. Go ahead, brother. Um, Leviticus 19.34. Um, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And thoughts on that, Titus? Um, I think it just expounds on um, the command in early in this chapter, verse um, 19, to love your neighbor. Um, and that includes people who aren't your countrymen. Good. Any other hands? Oh, yeah, Josiah. Yeah. And if you have one, just stick your hand up and the mic runner will find you. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Revelation 7, 9. After mm. this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And thoughts on that, Josiah? Um, yeah, just that we have confidence that um, God's people is a people that encompasses every um, earthly race and that God you know, has uh, his people and has a plan of redemption for people of all races. Mm. Mm. Amen. Yeah, in the Unity and Diversity Course seminar this past week, we were talking about how God was saying, and Isaiah, it's too light a thing that only Israel shall be redeemed. So that's a beautiful verse to land on. Yeah, Dan. A shout out to Wednesday Night Bible Study, Romans 2, 17 through 24. Um, won't read it because it's longer, but just Paul essentially critiquing kind of having defined, poor, inappropriately defined in-groups and out-groups. That's right. Romans 2, what was the reference? 17 through 24. Great. Bobby, some Wednesday Night Bible Study love right there. Yeah, Josh. Great. Annie. Titus 2, 11 to 14, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and in skipping ahead, to lead godly lives in the present age, wait, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And, and thoughts on that, Annie? Um, just generally speaking, redeeming a people who are for the purpose of good works. Amen. Amen. Yep, Mark. Yeah, the, the text I was going to preach on before COVID closed us down, Ezra 9 and 10. I'm not going to read it because it's two chapters. But Christians have badly misunderstood this in the past uh, because it's a criticism of intermarriage. But, uh, but it's a criticism of intermarriage of those who worship Yahweh with those who don't worship Yahweh. And these verses were taken out of context and misunderstood to say that people of different ethnicities should not marry. Uh, so that's a, an important text historically when looking at Scripture on race. So couldn't preach on it before COVID, but at least it gets that. There it is. All right, brothers and sisters. Thank you for that. Uh, we could keep going, uh, but what I want us to uh, at least... I want us to at least have a few minutes for Q&A at the end of our time together. But for the beginning of this time together, uh, as we build our collective thinking, notice how you've already begun doing so from the Bible up. And as a pastor, that's just wonderfully encouraging to me. 
And at the risk of sounding self-serving, given all that's gone on, even this year, regarding race, I could use some encouragement on these matters. Uh, if I can be honest with you, even as I prepared to give this talk, uh, I was shaking in my boots somewhat. Uh, because I feel like there are a thousand landmines to step on. Uh, just one step to the left, one step to the right, kaboom. And I bet I'm not the only one in our church who feels this fear or difficulty at times when it comes to talking about race. And it's this fear and difficulty I want us to focus on for our second question. And here it is. Why is it so hard to talk about race? Question two. Why is it so hard to talk about race? I don't ask this question to imply talking about race should be easy. Like, hey guys, why is it so hard for you? Come on, just do it like this. And I don't ask this question to complain either. Like, wow, why is this so hard? And no, beloved, I ask because talking about race is an obvious difficulty, and often the obvious things are the most important things. And yet, they are also often the most easily assumed or glossed over things. Right? We'd rather just speed past the difficulty. But if we slow down and stare at the difficulty, not only will we have a better idea of what to expect in these conversations, but we'll have a better idea of how to love one another through them. Uh, friends, if we appreciate the difficulty of this conversation, I think by God's grace, we'll better appreciate each other. Uh, we'll be slower to anger, uh, quicker to forgive, quicker to forbear with each other. Friends, understanding increases love. And if we understand something more of the difficulty before us, if we realize, hey, this conversation is harder than I thought, maybe we'll realize that we should be even more gracious than we thought we were being toward that brother, toward that sister. And this makes sense, right? I mean, maybe in May or June you thought, our church isn't gathering to talk about these hard things. But then you remembered, wait, our church is barely gathering at all. Those prayers and testimonies and sermon applications we used to enjoy on Sundays, the feast we had has been reduced to a Snickers bar in a parking lot in Northern Virginia, thankful as we are for it. <laughs> and remembering as much, Mark, helps us endure as much. And this is just one example of how understanding difficulty increases bearing with difficulty. And there's more to understand. So, why is it so hard to talk about race? I have six answers, but before we look at them, let me give you one summary answer. And here it is. Sin. Why is it so hard to talk about race? Because of sin. 
right? Turn to James 4. James 4. This would be my verse for the question we started with. Verse you think applies to this. James 4, 1. Uh, Bobby looked at James 3, 13 to 18 last week, and I'm just going to pick it up where you left off, brother. Uh, we'll start in James 4, 1. As I said, this would be uh, my verse to our, to our first question about what Scripture applies to these verses. James 4, 1. It, 4, 1. In it, James asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? Among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, James is like, you got beef? It's because you got sin. Right? And beyond that, even if it's not our sin, the curse of sin, the frustration of this fallen order that causes us to groan. As Romans 8.22 talks about, this curse frustrates our conversations. Surely, I'm not the only one in this room who groans sometimes when it comes to talking about race. So, why is it so hard to talk about race? Our big, fundamental, indispensable, uniquely Christian, biblically solid response is sin. That is our foundational answer. And yet, it's also an unsatisfying answer, isn't it? If you'd agree, let me suggest that's not because Scripture is insufficient, but because Scripture is not simplistic. In other words, you likely already know these conversations are hard because of sin. But even more than that, sin doesn't exactly answer our question about why race is so hard for Christians to talk about as opposed to other topics. After all, we talk about lots of things with each other in this fallen order with far less difficulty than we do race, work, the sports, parenting, theological debates about secondary or tertiary matters, as Bobby highlighted last week. I'm not saying those conversations are always easy, but not many of them get us going quite like race. What gives? Well, James' epistle helps us here. Notice it doesn't stop at chapter 4, verse 1. James goes on to name specific sins, oh, what they are. Who generally commits them alongside other pastoral concerns? So, just for example, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, James explicitly warns the rich of God's coming judgment for their sin of defrauding poor field workers. In saying as much, James sounds a lot like Proverbs 13, 23. An unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. So, James names specific sins and concerns. Likewise, we're going to double-click on our big answer here, sin and other issues, so we can make progress. Otherwise, we'll be stuck with a simple answer, sin, that if we're not careful, might just be a simplistic answer. But we can do better than that, beloved. So, why is it so hard to talk about race? Six answers, here we go. Answer number one, because we care about injustice. 
Why is it so hard to talk about race? Answer number one, because we care about injustice. We care about right and wrong. We care when we see someone doing wrong. And this is a good thing. In their little book, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics, Andy Nacelli and Jonathan Lehman write, anger is the God-given emotion for responding to injustice. If you hear of a child being abused, you should be angry. Anger's purpose, after all, is to oppose. We Christians should oppose all injustice, end quote. Beloved, I say as much because when we're talking about matters of race, we're often talking about matters of justice. And matters that sometimes seem obvious to us. And the more obvious they seem, the more enraged or troubled we are when people, especially other Christians, don't see them, or when people, especially other Christians, seem to be on the wrong side of them. The trouble is, we're not always right in our judgments, are we? What's more, even when we are right, what's obvious to one of us is not always obvious to another. In other words, we don't always agree on what the injustice of racism is, which is reason number two why it's so hard to talk about race we don't always agree on what the injustice of racism is. So we agree that racism is sin, but what that sin particularly is, how it manifests, the extent to which it runs throughout society, and who perpetuates it, that's a different story, isn't it? Friends, what makes an action statement, or person, racist. For that matter, what is racism? Is it a matter more of the heart or one more of policy and systems? Uh, And who says? Friends, not all of us agree what the problem of racism is, where it is, or if there even is a problem. Not all of us agree on how important these matters are compared to others. And we should recognize as much because if we're seeing and talking about different problems, we're going to be seeing and talking about different solutions. And the the more those solutions diverge diverge from or contradict each other, the harder our conversations will be. Maybe we could agree if race and racism were really simple matters, but the topics of race and racism are complex, which is reason number three why it's so hard to talk about race. The topics of race and racism are complex. Uh, Conversations about race and racism would be a piece of cake if the matters were simple, but they simply are not. When it comes to race, we're not just dealing with sin. We're dealing with ideas and cultures that have molded and morphed over time. 
beloved, have you asked yourself, is race real? Or is it a fiction? Or is it a biological fiction, but a a social fact? How many races are there? Scripture seems to talk about two races spiritually, one race biologically. What what are we talking about here? And then we have this whole question of ethnicity. Uh, Has the answer changed over time and how? What is race? Uh, What does it mean to be black? And has it always meant that? Can one act or talk white? Uh, Who says? And what does scripture say about these questions? In asking so many questions, uh, my goal is not to confuse you, but to show you the difficulty of the matters at hand. Uh, What's more, the preponderance of questions or the lack of agreement on the answers uh, doesn't mean the disputes about race are unimportant or they don't have true answers that can be taught, learned, or clarified. Rather, the abundance of questions and rebuttals means the answers will take work. Bible open, like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, scripture examining work. But bear in mind that for many people, this work isn't merely abstract. Which is to say, race isn't just hard to talk about because the topic is complicated, but because for many people, the topic is also painful. Reason number four, why it's so hard to talk about race. Uh, The topics of race and racism are painful. It's one thing for a subject to be complicated. Take the Trinity, for instance. It's complex. It's mystery. And though it's one that deeply, more than anything, bears upon our existence, It's not an issue spoken about with half as much angst as race. And that's because beliefs about the Trinity have not usually produced the pain beliefs about race have caused. Uh, No people group has been enslaved because of their view of the Trinity. At least in the history of our nation, no civil wars have been incited over beliefs about the the divine's triune nature. But when it comes to race, the case has been different. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters many people understand to touch upon the core of their identity. So the matters are personal. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters people see in the faces of their children. And so the matters are cherished. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters many people understand to have financially picked their pockets. So the matters are costly. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters many Christians understand themselves to suffer from today. And so the matters are relevant. Beloved, when it comes to race, we're dealing with matters that stir up painful memories of rejection and indignity and violence. And so the matters are tender. They're painful. Now, to be sure, we don't all have the same level of pain on these matters, which is to say we have different experiences. 
So even if you figure out how one black member might respond to a high-profile shooting, that doesn't necessarily mean all black members feel that way or want to be followed up with in a certain way. Uh, and this diversity of experience makes these conversations even more challenging, right? It's why these conversations can be confusing and messy and hard. But then again, isn't love sometimes confusing and messy and hard? Brothers and sisters, all of this goes to say that, that not only is race complex, people are complex. And therefore, we make a complicated conversation even more complicated. Right? And if we, can, if we can click out for a second, I think our complexity, as seen, in our, as seen in our diversity of experience, is helpful to remember. For not a few of us, for example, this is the most diverse church we've ever been a part of. Some of us grew up not really knowing anyone of a different ethnicity. And so we're more ignorant about these matters. What we learned about another Ethnicity, we learn from, uh, based on secondhand knowledge, whether it be what our parents told us, what our friends told us, what TV told us, etc., what music told us. Uh, some of us grew up not ever having to really think about our ethnicity. And we're being confronted with that for the first time. But for others of us, uh, we're being confronted about our ethnicity for the nth time. And that confrontation can hurt. Beloved, as we consider the pain of this topic, while it's good to affirm individual experience, I think it's safe to say, generally, there is broken trust, deeply broken trust, between ethnic groups given injustices past and present. Uh, one theologian diagnosed the matter citing how chronic inequality and devaluation of people groups engender a strife that hovers just beneath the surface, the surface. And we often see it erupt over even the slightest provocation. And when we see the eruption, when we see the pain, a lot of us don't know what to say. Oh, reason number five, why it's so hard to talk about race. We don't know what to say. When this conversation comes up, we can easily be conflicted or realize just how weak our words are. What's more, in racial conversations, as in any conversation, there is a time to answer fools and a time not to, as Proverbs 26 says, and it's not always clear which time is which. Now, I have more thoughts on how you might know which time is which. You can ask about that in the Q&A. Uh, but I want to keep going uh, to reason number six, why it's so hard to talk about race. And here it is. Even if we did know what to say, we'd be afraid to say it. It's so hard to talk about race because reason number six, even if we did know what to say, we'd often be afraid to say it. Beloved, I believe that more people than ever want to get these issues right. We don't want to be insensitive. We don't want to make them worse. 
But when we see the weight of these matters like we just discussed, and we see the pain that can happen if we drop that weight, we tremble. But we retreat. Or, if we do talk, we speak mainly with those whom we feel safe with. Friends, the truth of the matter is, it's not hard to talk about race with everyone. There are likely people we feel safe enough talking about these matters with. And the reason why is because we trust them. We feel as if they will be nice to us and give our sincere questions and qualms a fair hearing. But outside of that group, we don't have the same confidence. Brothers and sisters, have you ever felt like, I'd love to share my honest opinion, but I don't feel like I can? I'd love to share that I feel like the race conversation is often just black and white, and we could really benefit from talking about the Asian struggle or the Hispanic struggle, but I don't feel like I can. And that's just one example. We could list many sincere questions, and maybe you've tried to do just that before, and the conversation blew up. You were met with defensiveness or disregard. Maybe you were called names, even by your own friends. Y'all, honestly, who would want to sign up for that again? Who wants to enter a conversation in which there is lots of criticism and little grace? That's not to say we shouldn't enter that conversation. And I know some of you feel like you don't have the option to leave it even if you wanted to. But it is to say, beloved, we will make the work of entering these conversations easier if we go easier on each other. It strikes me in Titus 3, Paul instructs Titus to remind the people to be gentle. And that's one reason, friends, we've begun to think about why this conversation is so hard. So we might be more gentle. There are lots of, uh, there are lots more reasons uh, for why this conversation is so hard. We could talk about, uh, you can ask about those in the Q&A. Uh, but let's turn to our third question. Why should we talk about race? Question number three. Why should we talk about race? Question number three. Given how hard it can be to talk about race, especially with people we disagree with, at least one question comes to mind. Why bother? Why waste time and energy talking to them, whoever them might be? After all, not all hard conversations are worth having. In fact, there is a category of foolish controversy the Lord's servants should avoid, and some conversations about race are not exempt. But does this mean all or even most conversations about race should be avoided? Judging by how we might shy from one another on these matters, maybe we think so. Friends, I raise these points to make clear that we've thought about why race conversations are so hard. Now we should think about why they're so important. We've drilled down on the conversation's difficulty. 
now let's press into its urgency. After all, if conversations about race are so hard, we'd better make sure they're worth having. So why bother? Uh, in response to this third question, like the last question, we can offer a biblical and simple answer. Love. So, last question, why is it so hard? Answer, sin. This question, why should we bother? Answer, love. If I had two boards, I'd flip, but there we are. Generally, generally speaking, love should push us into, not away from these conversations. Why? Six reasons, here we go. Number one, we should talk about race with each other out of love for our Father and his glory. We should talk about race with each other out of love for our Father and his glory. Yes, conversations about race can be hard. But hard does not necessarily mean bad. So often when conversations about race come up, they're framed negatively. And we've seen why. But aren't these conversations more fundamentally wonderful stages for God's glory? Beloved, when we speak up for someone who can't speak for themselves, God is glorified. When we bear with and forgive one another, God is glorified. Friends, it is through the church, specifically Jew and Gentile, being made into one new man through Christ, that God is making his manifold wisdom known, Ephesians 3.10 says. And insofar as our conversations about race help us to maintain and display that blood-bought unity, God is glorified. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we don't seek to be glory thieves, but glory givers in all things. So if we're truly living to please God, whether we're eating, drinking, or talking about race, we should do it all for God's glory. And it is his glory, friends, that will motivate us to keep enduring in these, in discussing these difficult topics. If we talk about race because it's trendy, we won't last when the trials come. We'll be driven and tossed by the wind. But if we talk about race because we believe it matters for the glory of God, we will press on despite challenge or blessing, resistance or repentance, of course, we can take breaks from the conversation. This isn't the only conversation to have, but as long as we have a God to glorify, but we have a conversation we can take up toward that end. Number two, we should talk about race out of love for our neighbor and their relief. We should talk about race out of love for our neighbor and their relief. One thing conversations about race can do is educate us on ways we can better love our neighbor. In these sense, these conversations stir us up to love and good works, as Hebrews 10 speaks of. And beloved, I raise this point because in conversations about race, it's easy for us to get distracted. Uh, this overlaps with our, with our last point, but one, one reason conversations about race are so hard is something Kevin DeYoung noted. He writes, uh, with racial matters, we are often guilty of making every conversation about everything else. So even though the disagreement started off by talking about colonial American history, we ended up arguing about Donald Trump, mass incarceration, and corporate repentance, end quote. 
And what I want to highlight is while we may be having fruitful debate about a matter or three or 16, our neighbor still might be on the side of the road bleeding. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan in which the religious folks walk past the broken man. Now imagine if the religious, uh, if the religious folks intended to stop and help the man. But first, they argued with each other about the reason why the man needed help. So the priest says, well, I think his suffering is his fault. And the Levite says, well, I think it was the system that beat him down. And back and forth they go. All the while, the broken man is like, hey, guys, I'm still over here, bleeding. So, for example, Austin uh, might think Lincoln Heights looks the way it does for one reason. And Dan might think it looks that way for a different reason. But they both agree it needs help. So could they both find a common solution and get after it in their individual capacities because the days are short? Well, friends, the answer is yes, unless they spend most of their time arguing. So, beloved, take care that racial discussions don't become distractions from helping our neighbor when they should lead us to love them. Number three, we should talk about race out of love for our brothers and sisters and their holiness. We should talk about race out of love for our brothers and sisters and their holiness. Our church covenant says we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise and affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So we vowed to point out blind spots to each other. And the topic of race is not exempt from that vow. Now with that said, sometimes on this topic we can be zealous to point out blind spots. Yet if we're not careful, our zeal can be more demonic than we realize, as Bobby talked about last week. And here's a simple test from the Puritans to know whether our zeal, whether or not our zeal is from Satan or from God. Uh, when considering your zeal, answer these three questions. Number one, does it have more wrath than love? Does it have more wrath than love? Number two, does it disgrace your brother more than cure him? Number two, does it disgrace your brother more than cure him? Number three, does it divide more than heal? Does it divide more than heal? If so, it's from Satan. That's Richard Baxter. And I'm going to talk about Satan more in my next point, but beloved... As we admonish one another over this topic, ask yourself, do I need to give this brother or sister this admonishment, or can our relationship continue unaffected if I don't? If you do decide to give the admonishment, ask yourself, do I need to give this brother or sister this admonishment right now? Is this moment or this platform the best space to do so? Finally, ask yourself, do I hug this person harder than I hit them? Do I hug this person harder than I hit them? Of course, I don't mean physically. But do you encourage those people you disagree with for the good they're doing or the good points they're making more than you criticize them? Uh, beloved, a general rule of thumb on these matters is that hugging is more powerful than hitting. 
Hugging heals. Hitting divides and divisions matter. Which leads me to our next reason we should talk about race. Number four, we should talk about race out of love for our unity and its testimony. We should talk about race out of love for our unity and its testimony. It's tempting to think maybe I should just go to church where everyone agrees with me on these matters. But beloved, keep in mind that there is more than just your comfort at stake. That's not to say you shouldn't ever leave, but it is to say you should give sticking with people you struggle with your best. Because there is a corporate testimony, an evangelistic witness at stake. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that the world will know we are his disciples by how we love one another. Jesus prayed in John 17, 21, that we'd be one so the world would believe the Father sent him. How striking. Would it have been for a white, predominantly white, fundamentalist church in the 1950s to say, hey world, this man who has darker skin, whom you say is unworthy, he is my brother and my equal in every way, and he is welcome to this Lord's table and full membership rights at this church right alongside me, and if you have a problem with him, you have a problem with me because we are united in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray we're asking the modern-day equivalent of that question. That is, how can we love each other today on matters of race in such a way that the world would say, wow, look at how those Christians love one another. Not, wow, look at how they, they bicker and fight on Twitter, but, wow, look at how those Christians love one another. Earlier, we talked about pressing into these matters for God's glory. One primary way our unity glorifies God is by bearing witness to God, his power, what he can do, and Satan hates that witness. Again, another overlapping point, but one reason the race conversation is so hard is because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Ever since the church started, someone over here said this, Acts 6 shows us, or maybe Casey, Satan has loved to quake the church along ethnic fault lines. Why? Because it keeps people from seeing Jesus. And as we think about the devil, and people seeing Jesus, we, can't, uh, we should go on to our next reason, reason number five. Uh, Friends, we should talk about race out of love for our doctrine and its soundness. We should talk about race out of love for our doctrine and its soundness. Friends, these conversations can help us guard against false truths being promoted. And if we turn a blind eye to them, those truths can run. Now, to be sure, we can disagree on what the truth of a matter is, That presents its own difficulty. But there are some things we need to be clear on that Christian evangelical churches haven't always been clear on or have been clear on in the wrong ways. So, for example, interracial marriage, as Mark talked about uh, at the beginning of our time, someone might say God opposes it. No, he does not. Uh, Someone might say white people are inescapably guilty of their ancestors' sin. No, they are not. Uh, Friends, we talked about uh, unity in our last point, and someone I know said this once when talking about Christians' proclivity to avoid these conversations about race. He said, disunity 
is the result of a lot of necessary conversations never being had. Disunity is the result of a lot of necessary conversations never being had. And you know what? So is heresy. And so we want to talk to one another. To be clear, we don't want to be the heresy police all the time, right? You know, you said this, wham, you're out. Remember, hugging, not hitting. But with that reminder in mind, let's talk. In doing as much, we help one another guard the truth. Friends, not just as a congregational church, but as a Christian church, all of us have a vested interest in guarding the truth. Galatians 1, Ephesians 4 speak to this. And if if this truth is protected, the hope of the gospel can be held out. Which is to say we should talk about race out of love for sinners and their hope. We should talk about race out of love for sinners and their hope. Our last reason here. Beloved, if we don't talk about these matters, I think we'll unwittingly mystify the sin of racism and obscure the hope there is in Christ. After all, have you ever realized how being a racist is the worst thing, like one of the worst things you can be called today? And now we might react to that charge so poorly because the charge is unfair or untrue. But could it also be we react so poorly to this charge because we have skirted these issues for so long and therefore we're unprepared to deal with them? We're just left to define these matters on our own. And in this example, whatever our definition of racist or prejudiced is, it's usually not us, right? It's kind of like being rich. Few people think of themselves as rich. It's other people who are rich. But beloved, it is possible, even as Christians, for us to harbor prejudices. Do we really want to say it's not? The psalmist knew he had hidden faults. What about you? Going back to why this conversation is so hard, it's hard because some of us may have prejudices we don't even realize we have. I don't claim infallible knowledge as to know who that is or who it's not. But I mean, Mark, have you ever had a prejudiced thought in your life or in your Christian life? I have. But I also have good news for people who would say the same, and here it is. The scandal of the gospel is not that Christians can commit or be complicit with the sin of racism. The scandal of the gospel is that Christ forgives those who repent of doing as much. And to not talk about this topic is to hold back that great hope. Beloved, the way the world deals with sin is it either defends it or denies it. The way Christians deal with sin is we confess it. Because he who is faithful and just to forgive our sins will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So let's not act like racism is the sin that can't ever be committed. Let's not act like it's a sin that can't ever be forgiven. And talking about these matters can help us not act that way. Now, brothers and sisters, when we talk about these matters, we have an opportunity to be ministers of hope. Right? We talked about hope for those who commit racism, but what about those who receive it? Is it any wonder why someone might think Christianity is a white man's religion if we act as if it has nothing to say to them on these matters? Oh, beloved, it does. And so we speak imperfectly, yes, but sincerely, faithfully. Which leads us to our last question. We've talked about scriptures we think apply to these issues. Is that on the other side? Oh, we've talked about why these issues are so hard to talk about. We've talked about why we should talk about them anyway. But let's now conclude with how we can talk about them. That's our last question. How can we talk about race? How should we talk about race? I'm about to tell you how many answers I have, but don't worry, they are all tweet-sized. Here we go. Nine answers. Then we'll have Q&A. How should we talk about race? Answer number one, biblically. More than our political party or the latest New York Times bestseller, scripture is our first and final authority on these matters. We should talk biblically about them. Number two, humbly. Philippians two talks well about a humble mindset counting others more significant than yourselves, not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not to say disregard your own interests, but we prioritize in interests and needs of others, which means in this conversation can't just be, oh, it's hard for me, so I'm out, or you have to change everything for me in this sense, right? In that sense, we need boldness. Humility requires boldness because it puts us at exposure as we put, our, put the needs of others before our own. Number three, how should we talk about race? Kindly. Speak kindly. Beloved, ain't no one's sin toward you ever justify your sin toward them. What's more nowadays, when everyone is outraged about everything, kindness is radical. Paul talked about let your reasonableness be known. Speak kindly. Number four, speak prayerfully. Friends, is there not something in these matters of race that should lead us to confession, petition, thanksgiving, or lament? Is there not something that causes us to see the poverty of our own resources and the abundance of God's? Maybe talking to someone else would be easier if you talk to God more. Love the prayer in Second Chronicles 12. Oh God, our, uh, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Second Chronicles 12.20. Number five, 
Speak patiently. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is first described as patient. So let's not only listen to respond or to correct, but to understand. And understanding usually takes time. And if you're struggling to extend that time, keep in mind there was once upon a time on any given topic, you were once a complete idiot. And people bore with you. Remember that. Or get around an older saint like John Colley or Claudia Anderson. See their patience and learn. Number six, speak impartially. Speak impartially. And that means you can't just be concerned with the problems on the other side. You have to be willing to admit that your side might have some problems too. And you will build trust with the people you disagree with if you point to those problems as well. Number seven, speak honestly. Speak honestly. Proverbs 26, 28 says, a lying tongue hates its victims. Proverbs 29, 5 says, a flattering mouth works ruin. So tell the truth, beloved. Be careful with this point because being honest doesn't mean we get to say everything. Just because we're hurt doesn't mean we're right. Just because we're honest doesn't mean we're edifying. So speak measuredly, but speak honestly. And leave the results with God, which is to say, speak realistically. Number eight, speak realistically. Some of us seem as if we're expecting to change issues the nation has been wrestling with for centuries overnight. Be sure as you speak that you're not trying to sprint a marathon. Take breaks. Don't be consumed by this. Be consumed with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. He's coming again, isn't he? Which leads me to number nine. Speak hopefully. Speak hopefully. Being a realist doesn't mean being a pessimist. So let's speak with hope. Uh, There's a lot of talk about being prophetic these days. Speaking to the culture, to the church, as a prophet did, right? But I fear that people have reduced the prophetic task merely to confrontation. And I hope we remember that the prophets didn't just condemn. They gave hope. Uh, If you look at Ezra 5.1, so that book Mark was going to be preaching out of, Ezra 5.1, people are rebuilding. And it says the prophets were with the people of God, supporting them in their work. And as much as we can, we should support one another. Friends, Jesus is alive. His life, his, the spirit that raised him from the dead really does indwell us. Jesus is alive. That really does mean one day racism will be dead. He is coming again. 
Let's speak hopefully. Let's pray. Then we'll do some Q&A. Let me pray for us. God, help us. Help us to be those things we just talked about being. Help us to glorify you. Help us to keep glorifying you. Help us to maintain that unity that Jesus bled for. Father, as uh, news cycles turn, as horrific news hits us differently, as uh, we see hard things and we see them differently, Lord, help us to see with exact unity that cross that Jesus hung for, hung on, and what it means for us. Father, we pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you would give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.